I'm going to read Second uh, Timothy. You'll find it on page 1195 of the copies of the Bible that are in the pews. Um, and you may want to simply listen because uh, I want to read the whole of the text so that you get a sense of how this whole thing hangs together. Over the next three weeks and then three weeks in April and a couple of weeks in May, um, the preaching workshop are going to be preaching their way through Second Timothy. Uh, so this week Nigel kicks off for us next week Tim is going to uh, get into the text of, of uh, 2 Timothy and after, the week after that Dave Schofield um, and we hope over about 8 Sunday nights to work our way through the letter uh, of 2 Timothy um, but the first thing that would be very helpful is first to hear it because very often we listen to a few verses of scripture or whatever and miss the sense that this was a letter written and I don't know what you're like when you get letters but if it's a long one or a reasonably long one it's usually put the kettle on sit down and read the whole way through rather than a paragraph today and a paragraph in a month's time and whatever and sometimes we approach scripture forgetting that it was written by real people to real people so let's hear the whole of the letter Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God According to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason I remind remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline so do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done. But because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus. Who has destroyed death. And has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet I'm not ashamed. Because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you heard from me. Keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Philegius and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. 
You know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It's of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. So flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. 
They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women, who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Yanes and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds, who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark. Bring him with you. Because he's very helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him, because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defence, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. 
Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eulubius greets you and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Good evening. I'll just try and get myself organised now. Um, one of the unfortunate things of the years progressing is that I seem to need glasses more often. Nice. So uh, I'm not quite sure how to use them that well because if I do that and I have them on, I can't see very well. But if I do that without them on, I can't see very well. So I'm going to be going between them. Um, as David said, the group that meet a couple of times a month are looking at Second Timothy, and there's a number of us who are going to take different aspects of that book over the next few weeks. And I just want to give a bit of an introduction to Second Timothy tonight. And I'm grateful to David for having read the whole book, because it is a letter, and a letter um, comes and is usually read at one sitting. And we all love letters, don't we? We all like, I think, especially receiving letters. It's not so much fun writing letters, but receiving letters and reading letters can be really, you know, even in these days of emails uh, and text messages and so on, a nice handwritten personal letter is hard to beat, isn't it? And um, I wonder, you know, as you get letters, different letters say different things depending on the context in which they come. I don't know if you noticed in the news, in January of this year, there was a mining accident in West Virginia in the United States, a little town called Sago, and 13 men were trapped down a mine after a gas explosion. And as the people kept vigil at the Sago Baptist Church, the news came through eventually that 12 of those men had succumbed to carbon monoxide poisoning. But the interesting thing which came out afterwards, that one of the men, as he lay presumably dying in that mine, had written a letter, a letter to his family. He was a gentleman called Martin Toller, Jr. And he wrote the following words as he lay in the mine. He said, tell all, I see them on the other side. It wasn't bad. I just went to sleep. I love you. And it was signed J.R., sort for junior and as you read a letter like that as I read about it in the newspaper you know that was immensely powerful can you imagine how it must have felt to the family to have received that letter even you know thousands of miles here away in Northern Ireland just reading that and imagining the circumstances in which it was written you know just those few words are powerful and they hit you Tonight I want to consider a letter which I hope you will find equally as powerful. It's a letter written by an older man who was in fact coming towards the end of his life and written to a younger man. So what I want to do is go now to ancient Rome. I want to tell you a little bit about 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy came from Paul. And I don't want to talk really much about Paul. Paul the Apostle converted as Saul the persecutor and became 
a dedicated follower and instrumental in bringing to us many of the books that we have in what we call the New Testament. Paul was in prison in Rome, and commentators believe that this was his second imprisonment. You read about his first imprisonment at the end of Acts, Acts 28. He was released from prison, it appears, and then this is his second imprisonment, which eventually led to his execution. And apparently, according to Eusebius, one of the early church historians, Paul and Peter were both executed together. Can you imagine Paul in prison? Some of, something of the loneliness and boredom where you can't get access to the things, the people, the facilities that you're used to, cut off from the outside world. Lack of food, lack of human contact. And also the knowledge that his life was coming to an end. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4 and 2 Timothy tell us clearly that I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. The time of my departure is at hand. Paul was coming to the end, but he still seemed to have access to writing materials and maybe a scribe. And so he put together this letter to Timothy. And who was Timothy? Well, Timothy was a young man converted, or he was a young man when he was converted, to a place called Lystra. Lystra is somewhere in the area, I think, that we approximately equate to modern Turkey, in that general area. And he was converted there when he was maybe about 15 years old. And uh, that might have been on Paul's first missionary journey into that area. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 14. And then Paul returned to Lystra maybe some two years later. And it appears that Timothy was spoken very well of by the church in Lystra. So Timothy, or Paul, did what seemed like a very good idea. He took Timothy with him on his missionary journey as a helper, as a co-worker. So they set off on that missionary journey together. And Timothy was Paul's missionary companion for approximately 15 years, going around the churches in that whole area of Galatia, as we we would know it more or less as modern Turkey, and over a little bit into uh, Europe. And this was about 20 years later, approximately. So Paul and Timothy had been together for 15 years, and then for about five years or so, Timothy was working on his own. And Timothy had taken on significant responsibility, working with Paul and also working without Paul under Paul's guidance and Paul's leadership. And there's a whole host of things that's listed that, Paul, that Timothy did. And I don't want to give you the whole list, but for instance in Acts 19 you can read about him being sent to Macedonia with Erastus. In, first, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, you could read about him being sent to Corinth to teach. He helped Paul to write some of his letters. Did you know that? He helped Paul to write 2 Corinthians. Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. So are these the letters of Paul, or are these the letters of Paul and Timothy? So Timothy was a significant person in Paul's um, missionary entourage. And he spent a lot of time teaching and preaching in different places. What sort of a person was Timothy? What was he like? Well, we don't know a lot about him. The one thing we do know about him, well, one of the things we think we know about him 
It was the Timmy, Timothy, Timmy, I was going to say, Timothy apparently was a timid person. And that's, to, we're told, is borne out because there are a number of references to the fact that he's told not to be afraid. Second um, Timothy chapter 1, verses 16, Paul said, God didn't give us a spirit of timidity. And people think, well, they're talking to Tim, Paul's talking to Timothy here. He knows he's a timid person. You know, don't be frightened, Timothy. Another place in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul writing to the church at Corinthians at Corinth says, If Timothy comes to see, see to it that he has nothing to fear. And so the implication is Timothy might be somebody who's prone to be a little bit intimidated by people. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8 says, Don't be ashamed. And we also know the famous verse in 1 Timothy 5 where it says that Timothy was to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. So the impression is that Timothy was a little bit sickly as well. So the impression that some people want to give is that Timothy was a little bit fearful, you know, retiring, a lot of ill health, not a very strong or, um, what would you say, forceful sort of a person. I don't know whether that's true or not. Um, We could say that perhaps maybe it is, some of it, maybe it isn't. But here was a man who'd been working as a missionary, traveling around in the most stringent, difficult conditions for 20 years, you know, and I take my hat off to him because I think we could say two things. If he was timid and retiring, which some people say he was, then God had wonderfully used him despite his weakness. And it's interesting, 2 Corinthians is where Paul talks about when I am weak, then I am strong. Did Timothy have some input into that? Because Timothy knew exactly what it was to be weak and have God's help. But if he wasn't as timid as some have made out to be, I find it a great encouragement because here is a man who was doing all this for the Lord and yet he needed encouragement. He hated confrontation and he found the rigors of traveling life as a missionary really difficult and it affected his health. So Timothy comes across to me not necessarily as timid but as a real person, somebody who knew what real life was about and who struggled at times with real life. At this time, he was in Ephesus, and Ephesus was where Timothy had been sent as Paul's representative. He'd received an earlier letter, 1 Timothy, and some three or four years later, he was receiving 2 Timothy, with the letter we know as 2 Timothy, and Timothy was still at this place called Ephesus. Written in about AD 66-67, I take these things more or less as read from the, the, the expert commentators, I don't want to do an analysis with you tonight. There's lots of pros and cons about when it might have been written, later dates, earlier dates and so on, but I think we can run with a date about AD 66, 67. In other words, about 30-odd years, 30-something years after Jesus' ministry. What was Ephesus like? Well, it was a very important place on a busy trade route, very cosmopolitan place, centre of worship to the goddess Diana or Uh, Artemis and we can learn quite a lot about uh, uh, Ephesus in Acts 18, 19 and 20 but basically to say that Timothy was working in a city which was hostile to the gospel and as you read the letter it seems that he was working in a church situation which was a little bit hostile too so here he was a fairly young man what age would he have been maybe in his late 30s, 40 something like that had significant experience working with Paul. He was sent by Paul to minister in a fairly difficult situation. 
And here was a letter written to him by a man who was approaching the end of his life uh, as an apostle. So, what's the letter all about? And if we want to think about this letter, I don't want to give you a complicated analysis because I could see you all beginning to nod off if that was the case. But think about it this way. It's Paul's last will and testament. If you like to think it in those terms. Paul is writing out his will. He's writing about the things that really matter to him. And he's writing the will. Who do you normally write wills for? For the people who are going to inherit what you're passing on. Paul's heir is Timothy. So Paul's approaching the end of his life, writing his will for his heir, Timothy. And he's warning, basically, Timothy, who is his legitimate heir, to be careful because there's these illegitimate heirs or these usurpers who are going to try and take the inheritance, which is basically the gospel, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul had been instrumental in helping to plant in that whole part of the world. So think about the letter like that. Last will and testament to a legitimate heir warning about the problems, the issues of the illegitimate heirs, the usurpers. And throughout this letter, and this is a theme that we'll be returning to as the weeks go on, Paul reminds Timothy, remember, or he says to him, remember, don't forget, but for you, Timothy, remember this. And he keeps bringing Timothy back to the things which are central and which are important. So, just to develop that a little bit, what were some of the things that these usurpers or these illegitimate heirs getting wrong? Just to give you a feel for what was going on perhaps in Ephesus or in the church that Timothy, um, that Timothy and Paul were working in. And one of the first things that jumps out in the book, if you notice it, in 2 Timothy 2.18, it says very simply, but yet very straightforwardly, these people who have wandered away from the truth, they say that their resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. So here are people who were challenging a central aspect of the gospel. They say that the resurrection had already taken place, but we would believe that, wouldn't we? Resurrection, Jesus has risen from the dead. What were they saying? Well, basically, and if you look at Paul's teaching, especially in 1 Corinthians 15, remember, Paul was one of the people who had written this letter, uh, and Timothy was probably involved somewhere along the line and with the letter in, 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 or with the church in Corinth, he was talking about the fact that all Christians look forward to the time when they will physically and bodily be resurrected at the end of the age to be with Christ. But what these people were saying was that that wasn't going to happen. It had already taken place, and for them perhaps the resurrection had already taken place figuratively in their baptism. And so they basically saw that there was no future hope for the Christian. The resurrection had taken place. It was past. It was gone. And that implied perhaps, we're not 100%, I'm not 100% sure because the people who write the commentaries are not also 100% sure. But can you think of some of the implications of that? Well, one of the implications was that these people said, well, resurrection is not going to take place. So therefore, the body is not important. It's the spirit which is important. Therefore, my body is not something which is valuable. 
And you got two streams of these types of people. There were the stream who said, right, the body's not good, it's bad, therefore keep it down. Deny it food, deny it comfort, you know, discipline it, you know, subject it to the most stringent sort of activity so that it's subdued and it's under control. And then there were another group who said, the body doesn't matter, therefore I can do anything I want. So they went out and literally did anything they want. So you can see how those two streams, whether the people who were you know, very severe and had a very regimented lifestyle, denying themselves the essentials in some case of life, or those who said, I can do anything I want, would have a serious effect on the, the, the um, Christian experience of the church in Ephesus. So Paul was saying to Timothy, be careful of these guys because they're going to lead you down a dark and a wrong alley. And, you know, what I want to say to you is that what we believe really matters. You know, sometimes there is a danger that we think that, you know, we're believers. And what we believe in detail doesn't matter. We have an experience of Jesus Christ. Jesus is living in our lives. The Spirit has regenerated us. You know, belief in terms of doctrine and things is not really that important. Well, I think that what Paul is saying to Timothy here is is that it's very important. If you don't have a good understanding of what the resurrection is all about, then your Christian life can go off into an alleyway. And not only that, we must apply what we profess. Because you see what was happening to them. They didn't have the correct belief. Therefore, the application was all wrong. So we need the correct belief, but we also need to apply what it is that we believe correctly. You know, and I would ask the question, what really matters to us? You know, what, what is important to us? Is it that we appreciate and understand the great truths of the gospel? Or are we more like the people that Paul was warning against? And if you look at chapter 3, verse 4, it describes them as lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So they seem to have gone down the track of, you know, anything goes. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And our Christian profession demands that we believe, but also that we apply our beliefs in the correct manner and take our beliefs and use them properly. But not only was there this misunderstanding of of the resurrection, there was also, if you like, keyed on from that or following from that, a misunderstanding of the salvation that they had in Christ. Salvation in Christ was a present reality. And that was what these people emphasized. And you can see that in verse chapter 1, 9 and 10, where Paul says, Who has saved us, Christ has saved us and called us to a holy life. It has now been revealed through the appearance of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So salvation is a present reality. The other thing is that salvation is, is incomplete and this was one of the things which these people misunderstood and if you look at chapter 4 in either verse 1 or verse 8 you will see the reference there verse 8 probably is clearer where it says Paul says there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award on that day and not only to me but also to all who have longed for his appearing so this concept that salvation was started but that salvation would finish 
in the future. It's like the first advent of Christ brings salvation. The second advent of Christ completes salvation. And in between, we live out our Christian experience, our Christian life. But they, they saw life as all in the here and now, and that there was nothing in the future. Do we remember to live our life like that? As experiencing salvation in the present, but also as knowing that the best is yet to come? You know, doctrine, understanding, whatever the Bible teaches, needs to be applied. And you know, I find this, I've always found this whole concept of the resurrection of the body, the second coming of Christ, not the details because I'm not very conversant on that, a very exciting thing because it it gives you incentive, motivation, reason for living your Christian experience in the here and now. And I don't know how you think about salvation now as opposed to salvation future. I was thinking about this before this and I was thinking... I need an illustration. Christmas Day, you know Christmas Day when you're a child, you're opening all your presents. There's all the presents from aunts and uncles, isn't there? Which are usually exciting enough, but they're not quite as exciting as the big present, which is from mum and dad. I remember the year I got a toy fort, and I had little cannons which fired matchsticks, and I was really happy and really excited that year. That's a very inadequate Illustration, But you know the idea, our salvation now is something which is exciting and is relevant and is wonderful. But really the best is yet to come. There's more to be opened, more to be experienced and more to be seen. And that's, that's in the future. So a good understanding, a correct understanding of salvation was important for these people in, in uh, Ephesus. And really, as I said, it transforms our attitudes. And the other thing which there was a real misunderstanding that these people found and that Timothy was instructed by Paul to teach about was a misunderstanding of mission. What am I mean by this? Well, very simply, these people were, were saying, if sal- or we could say, if salvation is still incomplete, they were saying salvation was more or less complete. If salvation is still incomplete, then it's very clear that the church's mission remains incomplete. These people were saying that effectively they had arrived. The church's mission was finished. Resurrection had taken place. They understood all they needed to know. And things were tied up, sealed and delivered. But Paul was saying to Timothy, that's not the case. Salvation had begun with the first advent of Christ. Salvation was going to finish with the second advent of Christ. And in between, the church's mission remains. And really, you know... If you, look at the, if you read through Timothy, it seems that Paul is really hammering Timothy in this. Because the number of times he tells him to go out and spread the gospel, preach the gospel, teach, is interesting. In chapter 1, verse 8, he talks about, testify about our Lord. In verses 11 to 14 of chapter 1, he says that again. He says that you should be heralding the gospel. Chapter 2, 8, 13, he talks about remembering Jesus. This is my gospel. And then really, if you like, the emphasis he has in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, he talks about preaching the word, 
doing the work of an evangelist. In other words, the church's mission is incomplete because salvation hasn't been completed yet. So there's so much to be done. And also, Paul was urging Timothy to get out there and engage the world with mission with a, a true and a correct representation of the gospel. And he was encouraging him to safeguard the message as well. And really, what I want to ask us is, are we engaging the world with an authentic message? You know, it's really encouraging in church to know that we have a missionary policy, to know that we have an evangelism committee, and we're doing all these good things. But are we, as individuals, engaged? Are we involved in spreading the word, the gospel? Are we sort of paying lip service to it? Because... What Paul wanted was that Timothy would be actively engaged at Ephesus in heralding the gospel, in preaching the word. The word. So where have we come? Second Timothy is Paul's last will and testament. And Paul is writing about the things that really mattered to him. And that made me think, if I was going to sit down and write my last will and testament, not my last will and testament, my last letter, if you were going to sit down and write your last letter to whoever, your spouse, your family, your friends, parents, whoever, you know, what things are important to you? Paul was very clear, very straightforward with Timothy as to what things were important to him. What about us? I mean, what sort of things are important to us? Is our experience of salvation transforming our lives? It's very, very sobering, I think, to read chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul talks about, or in chapter 3 at the beginning, he talks about People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud. And so he lists all these errors which these folks were leading the church into. And then he goes on in verse 5 and says, Having a form of godliness, but denying the power. The interesting thing was that these were people who were, in some sense, inside the church. Or maybe there was a series of house churches in Ephesus are a number of congregations meeting in different places. These were people who were inside the church, who were teaching, who had responsibility of some sort, who may be involved in leadership. And yet, they were lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful pride and so on. And they had a form of godliness of some sort. I don't know what it was exactly. But they were denying its power. You know, and what about us? You know, what sort of shape, because that's what the word form means, what sort of shape does our profession take? You know, what sort, if people looked at us, you know, what, what, what form are we professing Christianity? Can they see pride, abuse, disobedience to parents, ungratefulness, lovelessness? Can they see those sort of things in our profession? Because Paul says, have nothing to do with them. 
And, uh, you know, I find that very sobering, you know, that that, that that sort of error had crept into the church. In Paul's day, church was still young, vibrant, had only been on the way 30-odd years. And yet here we are 2,000 years down, I guess, where we could even be more prone to that sort of thing. So, is our experience of salvation transforming our lives? Transform, that's the word again, form, the form of our lives. Changing the shape of our lives. And is our mission transforming the lives of others? As we live between Christ's first advent, and apparently the word used here, I'm throwing this in just to show the folks in the preaching workshop that I'd read some commentaries. Apparently the word is appearing, epiphany, between the first appearing of Christ and the second appearing, first and second advent, is our mission that we're involved in transforming the lives of others? Or again, do we have a Christianity which is a wee bit like these folk in Ephesus? You know, it's stunted. It's not doing anything. It's shapeless, it's formless, it's not changing our own lives, and it's having no effect on other people's lives. So I hope and pray that as we think about Timothy, the book, Second Timothy, the book, the letter, over the next few, week, few weeks, it really will transform, change the shape of our lives. We're going to sing together, and we're going to sing together a hymn, Forth in thy name, O Lord, I go, my daily labor to pursue, thee only, thee, resolve to know in all I think or speak or do. And this is really a prayer as we go out tonight, to take the scripture, not necessarily the things that I said or applied, but as you heard it read, as the Spirit will take it and apply it into your hearts and lives, and to take those things and be resolved to know them and to do them in all we think and speak and do. Let's sing together and we'll we'll, we'll rise and stand as we sing.